The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 13th chapter. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I'm only with you a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It might just be impossible to overstate how important is the theme that underlies our reading from Acts 11 today. Jesus at the beginning of Acts, risen from the dead and soon now to return to the right hand of the Father, gave his disciples not just their mission, but also a promise for them as they lived into their mission. It went like this, the promise. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, the mission. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus, the Messiah, promised to the Jews and given to the world as a Jew, in the final thing he said to his followers, all of whom were Jews, said that he wanted all that he had done proclaimed, shared, starting in Jerusalem, which is to say starting with the Jews, albeit in the city where the leaders of the Jews just weeks ago had demanded that he be crucified. So you know from the start, he's not sending them on a cakewalk. And then also he said, next that they should reach beyond Jerusalem to Judea, the land of the Jews, whose Roman governor, of course, Pontius Pilate, had issued the order for the crucifixion, so still no cakewalk. But then too, as well has said, they were to reach beyond Judea to the next-door neighbor, Samaria, which, of course, is where Samaritans lived. Jews didn't like Samaritans. Apparently, being the Church of Christ isn't about who you like or don't like, but who God loves, whether you like it or not. And then finally, Jesus makes this gigantic leap to tell them that, that they should reach with God's grace and the gospel, not now just to the next neighbors, places like uh, Galilee and Syria, but rather all the way to the very ends of God's earth. But which point now this mission clearly has gotten way bigger than them. But not to worry, said Jesus, and not to fear, for what is, of course, bigger than you is not, if, if, if it's just you, is not bigger than you with the Holy Spirit upon you. Worth remembering, there are tons of things that are bigger than you, but one of those things isn't God's purpose, God's mission, God's call for you. For whom God calls, God also empowers for the call, every time. 
Jesus then did ascend into heaven, and the apostles then did what they'd been told to do. They waited in Jerusalem for the power from on high that Jesus had promised them, which came 10 days later on Pentecost Sunday, when the power of the Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit of God was promised keepingly and powerfully and dramatically poured out upon them. Immediately after which, in faith and in not fear, they then dramatically and world-changingly set out as ground zero of the movement that would reach, in Jesus' name, to the entire world. They started where they were, Jerusalem, where the same Peter, who just a few weeks ago, before Easter and Pentecost, terrified confronted by just even some servants, had told these people that he had no idea who Jesus even was, this same Peter, now just weeks later, but on the other side of Easter, tells these very same ones who demanded and then seen to the death of Jesus to shut him up about Jesus and the gospel and all that had happened, even though they were now giving him commands to try to shut him up. Turns out it didn't work. Jesus wasn't the only one who was raised up to new life on Easter Sunday. Peter, it turns out, was raised up to new life as well. It wasn't Peter. It was Stephen, one of the very first deacons in the church, who became the very first martyr, the first of many Christians to be killed right there in Jerusalem for his proclamation of the gospel, after which many Christians, including some of the apostles, including apparently Peter, scattered out from Jerusalem, which on some level might just seem like they were scattering away from danger, except that as it turns out, when the Holy Spirit involved, everything that is dangerous is nevertheless everything also is an opportunity, which turned out to be exactly the case here as led by the Spirit. They didn't abandon their mission. They actually grew into it. As leaving Jerusalem, they now started to reaching in Jesus' name with the Easter promise beyond Jerusalem and out into Judea and Samaria, which last week is where we found Simon Peter in the port city of Joppa, where when we left him last week, he was staying with a man also named Simon, a tanner. Which takes us to the first part of Acts 10. We're still not to our text. In, and, and where it says that in Caesarea, which is another port city just a little north of Joppa, and it's also the headquarters of Rome's presence in Judea, there was a Roman centurion whose name was Cornelius and who was a good man and a God-fearing man who respected, even prayed to, the God of the Jews. But he nevertheless wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile, which is to say that Jews obeying their scriptures, would have steered clear of him, for according to the laws in their scriptures, as a Gentile, he was unclean. Plus, he was a Roman centurion, which is to say, God-fearing or not, he was the oppressor. He was the enemy. One afternoon, Cornelius, it says, was praying, and he had a vision of an angel 
which terrified the bejeebers out of him, but told him to send to Joppa for a man named Simon Peter, because, said the angel, the God to whom you are praying will answer your prayers with the words he will say to you. Worth remembering. Sometimes God answers prayer not with the words God says, but with words others say including those who love and worship the same God you do, but maybe not in the same exact way. The very next day, when these three people, the people that Cornelius had then dispatched to Joppa, were almost to Joppa, Peter, it says, still in Joppa, was hungry. And while they prepared the food, he went up on the rooftop to pray, where he then had a vision of his own. A vision in which it says that the heavens opened... And something described as like a large sheet was lowered down and on it were all kinds of creatures that Peter's Bible said were unclean and shouldn't be eaten or even touched. But then a voice said, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Nuh-uh, Lord, something sacred or profane or unclean has never touched my lips. And the voice said, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. Immediately after the vision, Peter was wondering what in the world that was all about. When the folks whom Cornelius had sent knocked on the door downstairs of Simon the Tanner's house, looking for him, at which point Peter, still puzzling up on the roof, somehow, in however these other things, the way these things work, somehow heard the whisper of the Holy Spirit saying, there are three men downstairs, go with them. I sent them. Worth remembering, sometimes the way God answers prayer is through circumstances that come your way, sometimes perhaps accompanied by whispers that whisper within you and are the whisper of the Holy Spirit. The next day they all went to Cornelius, who immediately knelt before Peter, who immediately then replied, for goodness sakes, man, stand up. Don't bow to me. I'm just a man. And then he went inside where were gathered a whole assembly of Cornelius's family and friends and servants and slaves, Gentiles, all of them. Peter said to them, I know that some of you know, because you've lived here, that according to the Jewish laws written in Jewish scripture, I should not be here. For our law and our scripture calls Gentiles unclean. But God has given me a vision of a world where others aren't thought of as unclean or thought of as other just because they aren't one of us or because they are somehow different than us. And Cornelius then told him about his vision and then he said to Peter, so tell us what the Lord has commanded you to say. And he told them about Jesus, who lived and died and rose again to cleanse us all of our altogether common uncleanness, that being the uncleanness of our sin and the death which the law says sin deserves. 
And as he spoke, the Holy Spirit, in a way that was apparently obvious to all, fell upon all who were there, all of whom, except for Peter and those six who had accompanied him, were Gentiles. And those with Peter said, the Holy Spirit has come upon them, just like it came upon us, but how can that be? They're Gentiles. They're not like us. Peter replied, Gentiles they are indeed, but the Holy Spirit is in the house, people. And as far as Peter was concerned, there was only one thing to do because it wasn't him. It wasn't even Scripture at this point leading the way. It was the Spirit leading the way. So he did it. He asked for water, and he baptized every person in the place. And he stared there, stayed there, and he ate with them, even though they did not offer a kosher alternative. And he taught them everything he had, had, did know and had been commanded to share in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, which, of course, the ends of the earth would be almost unanimously inhabited by not Jews, but Gentiles. And that takes us to our text for today, where word had gotten back to Jerusalem about what Peter had done and what he was eating and with whom he was eating and staying. And they sent word to Peter saying, wait a minute, you, you can't do that. It's against the rules. You're a Jew, Peter. And our Jewish law clearly states that we don't eat or fellowship or worship with unclean people who will remain unclean until, among other things, their men are circumcised into Judaism. So Peter, in our text for, day, for today, has made the trip up to Jerusalem where he now listened to their criticism. And then he told them of the vision he had. And he told them about the vision Cornelius had told him that he had. And he said, I know what the law says about clean and unclean. I know what scripture says about sacred and profane. But I'm here to tell you, the Holy Spirit was in the house. And she wasn't playing by those rules. So what was I to do? Say no to those to whom the Spirit had clearly already said yes. For they were given the same Spirit God, gift, God gave to us. What does you want me to do? Say, God, you can't do that? And when his critics heard this, it says they were silenced. And then they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. And that's the end of the story, except, of course, that it's not the end of the story, because the fact is this turned out to be an issue that took decades and even beyond for the church to work its way all the way through, which can be seen most clearly if you read and follow not Peter but Paul in the rest of the book of Acts and then read some of his letters that are kind of uh, contemporary with those travels in Acts. And you will discover Paul found himself to be called precisely to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to non-Jews, whom he told were forgiven of sin and raised to new life and eternal life forever, not by obeying any rules or by doing anything, but rather by faith in Jesus and all that he had done for them and that all that he promised them. 
But Paul, throughout his ministry, was trolled by those who followed after him to almost every place he went to say to the people to whom Paul had preached that Paul had gone too far. That yes, we are saved by faith in Jesus, but Jesus was a Jew. And faith in him isn't the real thing unless it moves you to obey the Jewish laws, including Jewish food laws, and including your men being circumcised just like us other Christians who are also Jews. <clears throat> that food and circumcision thing did eventually get worked out by the church. And so the church, like Peter, was eventually converted from being a church which demanded obedience to Jewish laws and practices for full participation and inclusion to become a church which said that Jewish laws and practices are fine if you're a Jew or a Jewish Christian. But God's plans and God's grace and God's love with no laws or conditions attached reach oh so beyond that. Of course, when it comes to other laws and traditions and practices, the church still isn't fully converted, right? And so, for example, many still limit how far-reaching is the grace of God based on laws and traditions and practices regarding gender. And they can tell you Bible verses that back them up. And others still limit how far-reaching is the grace of God based on laws and traditions and practices regarding race. And they will tell you Bible verses that they say back them up. And still others still limit how far-reaching is the grace of God based on, and this is a favorite, based on certain particular sins. As in, you know, your kind of sin, which I want to tell you is much worse than my comparatively minor sin. And they somehow manage to find verses to back them up. And then, of course, oh, my, yes, of course. Still others would limit how far-reaching is the grace of God based on laws and traditions and practices regarding sexual orientation, as in you've got to believe in Jesus, but you've also got to be both straight and cisgender like I am. And indeed, there are some Bible verses they can find and argue with you if you think otherwise. Specifically, there are seven Bible verses or passages generally cited to make that point. None of them in the Gospels, none of them from Jesus. I regret, because in hindsight, I know it caused harm that it took me too long to dig in to those seven oft-cited passages, then at last finally to reach the conclusion I do now firmly hold, that being that those passages were speaking to different issues in a different context, which do not carry over to be binding in our context, where, for example, we, unlike St. Paul, who said some of the harshest things, but we, unlike St. Paul, know now that sexual orientation is not a decision someone makes, it is how someone is made. 
And we believe that the maker of all people is God and that what God creates is good every time. Not to mention the fact, too, that we believe, as the New Testament says, that God is love. If that's true, then love is good every time. Although in terms of the conversion of Roger on this point, it wasn't just a study of those seven passages that converted me to where I now am. It was also other places in Scripture, including significantly this text from Acts, even though it never specifically says anything about sexual orientation at all. But what does it say? That Peter, even though there were Bible verses saying this was against the rules, was given a vision of a church which reaches to embrace those who heretofore had been walled off, there to discover that the Holy Spirit wasn't just the one leading him there. The Holy Spirit was already there before he even arrived. And seeing evidence of the Spirit poured out upon those whom he'd always thought couldn't be spiritual because of laws that said they were unclean, now said, if God gave them the same gift of the Spirit that God gave us, who am I to say? that they need to become like us in order to become one with us in the Spirit. Do you know what finally converted me and continues to compel me in the firm convictions I do now hold? It was the people across gender and or orientation lines whom I began more and more to meet and who were people I more and more found who had such deep faith in my Jesus. And we who are Lutherans are people who hear the Bible tell us that faith isn't just some kind of personal decision. We believe that faith every time is a gift of God, given somehow through the oft mysterious work of the Spirit of God. And after meeting these non-heterosexual or cisgender brothers and sisters in Christ who had such evident and deep faith, I found myself thinking what I'm pretty sure Peter thought. Oh, my Lord, forgive me. Oh, my brothers and sisters, forgive me. If God gave you the same gift that God gave me, the gift of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Who am I to say that you need to be someone other than you are to be one with me in our Lord Jesus Christ? Amen.